in the Sutta on the mindfulness of the body we heard about the different ways of meditation three kinds of watching the breath and then three different ways for insight elements of which the body consists parts of which the body consists and then the channel ground and just as um, the Buddha finishes explaining about the channel ground meditation he starts explaining the jhanas and um, the first one I have read it yesterday but I'll read that part again again quite secluded from sensual desire secluded from unprofitable dhammas um, mental formations he enters upon and abides in the first jhana which is accompanied by initial and sustained application with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion so here actually what is uh, not mentioned is one of the five first jhana factors which is one pointedness which isn't mentioned at all um, what is mentioned is that initial and sustained application and the pleasure or the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion so actually it's only mentioned that in the first jhana piti arises which happiness and pleasure is the piti the delightful sensation the other things which do arise are not mentioned because they are of course not the overriding factor of the first jhana they are there but they're not the overriding factor the joy is there and the one-pointedness but they are not um, being uh, focused on what's focused on is the pleasure which is um, uh, the um, pleasurable sensation now the word born of seclusion um, referred to secluded from sensual desire secluded from sensual desire secluded from unprofitable mental states well it's not possible to get into any of the jhanas and if one doesn't is not secluded from any kind of sensual desire or from any kind of unprofitable or unwholesome mental state one can't have the one or the other and then still hope to become concentrated so there's no way that the two can go together but the Buddha always starts explaining the jhanas by saying quite secluded from sensual desires and sometimes just born of seclusion and that then is often misunderstood this born of seclusion thinking one has to leave the world in order to do this well one has to sit of course in a quiet place but particularly the first jhana having done this many times one doesn't even need a quiet place anymore it's uh, just a habitual way for the mind to go in the beginning one does need a mind, uh, quiet place now then he gives for each of these um, jhanas that he mentions and I think he mentions only four in this one yeah. Mm-hmm. 
he's only going as far as the fourth one, I think. Um, he mentions a, um, a simile or an analogy to make one understand how this feeling that is mentioned can be experienced. It's quite interesting. One makes happiness and pleasure born of seclusion, in other words, the pity, the, the, the lifeful sensation, drench, steep, fill, and extend throughout the whole body, so that there's nothing of the whole body to which this delight, born of seclusion, does not extend. Now, as you know, there are many different uh, kinds of sensations which can happen and all of them are pleasurable or delightful and they should go through the whole body. Now I give the simile. Just as a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water kneads it up until the moisture wets his ball of bath powder soaks it and extends over it within and without though it does not itself become liquid so too a person makes happiness and pleasure born of seclusion drench the and extend throughout the whole body so that there's nothing of the whole body to which the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion does not extend now in this case this is something that we don't even know about. This bath powder, which is just powder, which has to be put together with water and then makes a ball, is what people apparently use instead of soap. Nowadays, of course, we've got soap, so we don't have this kind of thing. But we can imagine, um, instead of bath powder, we can think of flour. And if we add water to flour and make a ball out of it, so that the the um, ball that is uh, made out of this flour is completely drenched and steeped in this water but it doesn't become liquid. The same is with this body. It's drenched and steeped in this delightful sensation but nothing happens to it. I mean, it doesn't change in any way. So this is the, the uh, simile given for the first jhana. This bath man or bath man's apprentice and because it's such a strange, or for us anyway, strange simile, it's almost unforgettable. It's, uh, I've never forgotten this one, about the bath powder and the metal basin and kneading it to the moisture with this ball of bath powder. But if you think of flour, it's very simple, that you, you know what it's like, make little flour balls with water. So this whole sensation goes through the whole body. And again, um, it is the next paragraph, is again, and he abides thus diligent, ardent and self-controlled, and memories and intentions based on the household life, past and future, based on the household life, are abandoned. And with their abandoning, the mind becomes settled, quietened, brought to singleness and concentrated. And that's how one develops mindfulness of the body. So that too is 
the uh, development of the mindfulness of the body. Now, with the stilling of initial and sustained application, one enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind, without initial application and without sustained application, with happiness and pleasure born of concentration. Now, the initial and the sustained application, as you well know, is the um, initial application to the meditation subject and the sustained application is staying on it. The uh, initial application is compared to hitting the gong, the sustained application to the sound that the gong makes after it has been hit. This is the sustained application. Very simple with the gong, not so simple with the mind, is it? So the initial application and sustained application, the takavichara, are the first two factors of any meditation, whether jhana or otherwise. Initially, one sits down and has to apply one's mind to the meditation subject. And if the mind is completely scattered, or if one doesn't have a proper meditation subject, nothing happens because one can't stay on it. But if one sustains the application to the meditation subject, obviously, the first jhana arises. It can't help to arise, it must arise eventually. And that is a delightful feeling. Now in the second jhana, the initial application and the sustained application is no longer necessary. In fact, it has no place in it because the second jhana arises out of the first one, obviously. The, um, the first one having the delightful feeling brings joy. Now, this is completely differently explained, which happens quite often that you find different explanations uh, for the same thing, which is a, according to the people who were listening. It's um, quite interesting to see that sometimes that exactly the same thing has different components. It's through the second jhana. But what's interesting here about the second jhana is that it arouses self-confidence. And it must eventually arouse self-confidence even if one hasn't had any before at all. Now some people are blessed with self-confidence anyway, jhana or no jhana, but if one isn't blessed with it, the second jhana will definitely do it. And it will do it because of the fact that one can have inner joy without outer conditions. And inner joy without outer conditions arouses the self-confidence that one doesn't lead the world to uh, comply with one's wishes. Nobody makes the world comply with one's wishes. It just isn't hap uh, happening to anyone. And because of that, one people very often lose a confidence that they can arrange their lives in a way which doesn't have so much dukkha in it. But if one can arouse inner joy without having to relate to all the things that one wants and doesn't want, the confidence arises that one is no longer a dependent victim. Most people are dependent victims of what goes on around them. And this being victimized, of course, doesn't give any confidence. I mean, we're, we're doing it to ourselves. Everybody is doing it voluntarily. But we don't realize that. 
So with that, with the second jhana being com- uh, well done, one knows one can go back to that and one is becomes at least that much independent. As that, ma- that much in the mouth doesn't get completely independent to one's enlightenment, but at least that much independent. So there is a self-confidence which arises and there is singleness of mind the mind does become more uh, concentrated in the second jhana um, because it is already having a longer period of concentration than in the first one. And happiness and pleasure born of some concentration is here the same words being used, um, definitely the translation, because there are one, two, three words for happiness in Pali that I know of or maybe more and uh, in English we might be saying pleasure instead of happiness but they denote different things so in the first instance the Pali word is piti which is delightful sensation in the second instance the Pali word is sukha which denotes inner joy or happiness it sukha is the highest kind of happiness with all the different Pali words taking into consideration and yet here in the translation the same words are being used so it is a little bit misleading but what it really means and as you know all of you have heard this before or at least most of you that um, the first one is a delightful sensation the second one is a joy and the joy arises out of the fact that the, the delightful sensation has been there now here again Buddha gives a simile how one experiences that. And this is actually one of the very few, not the, possibly the only sutta, in which he expresses how one experiences it, where he gives these similes. One makes happiness and pleasure, born of concentration, drench sleep full and extend throughout the body, and then there's nothing of this whole body to which this happiness and pleasure born of concentration does not extend. Again, this is misleading because one thinks it has something to do with the body, it doesn't. It's an emotion. But the emotion is um, completely pervading. It pervades everything. Now, although the body at that time does not have a solid feeling about it. There is a pervasion of this joyful feeling all through it. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below, having no inflow from east, west, north or south, nor yet replenished from time to time by the skies with showers, and then the cool fountain of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench deep fill and extend throughout the lake and there would be nothing of the whole lake to which the cool water did not extend so too the person makes happiness and pleasure born of concentration drench deep fill and extend throughout the body so that there's nothing of the whole body to which the happiness and pleasure born of concentration does not extend what the Buddha is saying that there's a lake and there's no outside inflow of cool water, nothing from the skies and nothing from the outside that's coming in. There's um, 
the water, the cool water, comes from below. There's a, um, like a spring. And this is what happens with the joy. It feels actually sometimes like a spring, like a little bit of a fountain or something like that. And it comes from within. It does nothing from outside. And this is, of course, the point of the whole exercise, that the world at large, and sometimes meditators too, of course, think that they can get it out there through the eyes, through the ears, through the nose, through the uh, skin, through the um, and also through the thinking, tasting. That as if there was something out there that can be put in, and that's going to bring happiness and pleasure or delight or joy. And this is how the world lives. And uh, then we have, of, of, of course, this um, idea that people have to comply with the way we think they ought to be, or they should appreciate us, love us, and look after us, or what all the ideas that we have. And all that is outside and should come in here as if there was an opening that could bring joy into the heart. There is no such thing. There are, there are five senses that sense to us. And the mind makes up a, uh, an idea about these sense contacts. And the sense contacts, being very short-lived, are triggers for reactions, and then reaction after reaction after reaction, as we have already heard in the other suttas, so the Buddha is trying to uh, explain through this simile that joy only exists within. All the outside sense triggers cannot bring that inner joy. They are, they are very nice for momentary reactions. And uh, this is the, um, the great advantage of the second jhana, that we eventually if we pay attention, well, some people don't even pay attention to that, but if we pay attention, we will notice that what we've been trying to get is nothing compared to what we have there, which is sitting within us anyway. We've been trying to find it out there. And again comes the same paragraph. As he abides, diligent, ardent, and self-control, memories and tension based on the household life are abandoned, and with the abandoning, mind becomes settled, quietened, brought to singleness and concentrated. That's how one develops mindfulness of the body. So, again it is being said that the jhanas, being a concentrated state of mind, of course, also um, underline and um, underwrite the mindfulness of the body. And as you remember, the mindfulness of the body, the very first um, sentence I read out, which is not out of this sutta, out of another one. They who do not savor the deathless do not savor mindfulness of the body. They savor the deathless who savor mindfulness of the body. Deathless being Nibbana. Support this mindfulness of the body. With the fading as well of happiness, abide, he abides in equanimity and mindful and fully aware, still fleeting pleasure with the body enters upon and abides in the third jhana, on account of which the noble ones announce he has a pleasant abiding, 
who has equanimity and is mindful. It's a diff- again a different way of describing the third jhana and doesn't really, um, well, if one hasn't done it, it's not that wonderful. The, um, from go from first to second, we let the uh, delightful sensation go in the background. To go from second to third, we let the joy go in the background. And it says here the fading of happiness, the fading of joy. Um, and then equanimity arises. What arises is a feeling of contentment. The word equanimity is not so um, common with us. So it's easier to have an idea about this, that there is contentment. And the contentment does um, lead towards peacefulness. The word equanimity can be used uh, very nicely. It has an application here because the mind knows after having had the second jhana that it doesn't have any wishes. It doesn't have any wishes, it's wishless. And because it's wishless, it's contented. And because it's contented, it does have equanimity. Now, mindfulness is part of all the meditation. If there isn't any mindfulness, one doesn't know what one is doing. In fact, the lack of mindfulness uh, can bring trance in the worst way, or it can bring sleep in another way. useless way, but mindfulness means that one is wide awake and aware of what's happening there. So the joy or the happiness goes in the background, the contentment, the equanimity comes in the foreground. But it says still feeling pleasure with the body. Uh, One is still aware in the third jhana, not so much of the first one, of the delightful sensation, but that there is this contentment has a feeling of pleasure in it. And uh, it goes all through one, and there is no other way of saying that as, as if it goes all through the body, but it has nothing to do with physical feeling, nothing to do with physical sensation. It is just a feeling that there is a joyfulness which is in the background, but still there. And this is mentioned because it's a big difference to the fourth one. Now, the first three, the the first one and the second one have a bit of excitement in them. It all seems to be happening up here with a bit of excitement. The third one already settles down. There's a settling down. And uh, although it's still very pleasant, it does have the feeling of being settled. Again, there is this um, uh, great benefit that we have from this third one that we realize that the only way peace can be uh, entertained in the mind and in the heart is if we have no wishes. The more wishes, the more lack of peace. And the wishes may be just as justified as we would like to make them. We can justify every single wish that we've ever had. You know, we, we think that they're, they're good wishes, they're nice, they're, they're, everybody should have this. We have deserved it, we should 
it's, uh, it's our due and it doesn't matter what we think. Every wish brings disharmony. So here we have a personal experience of the fact that only wishlessness brings peacefulness. And without that personal experience of wishlessness, it's quite unlikely that we should ever strive for that. Because every human mind has the idea that a gratified wish is going to bring what we've been looking for, paradise or whatever it is we're looking for. But every wish brings dukkha. That's all it does. And that's the first and second noble truth. That there is dukkha and the reason for it is our, our wishes. We want it other than it is. But in the third jhana, we don't want anything other than it is. We're just quite, we are contented with what is. And therefore, peace can enter into heart and mind. Without that, peace will always stay away. And peace is not the opposite of war. Peace is an inner feeling. And the only way to ever get it is to stop wanting. It's so simple, but not easy. Now here again we get a simile and an analogy how to how to feel about this thing. Um, he makes pleasure divested of happiness. This is interesting. Uh, pleasure which is without this inner joy, but it isn't quite that way. Well, let's say contentment. So contentment. One makes contentment divested of happiness drenched deep fill and extend throughout the body and there's nothing of the whole body to which this contentment divested of happiness does not extend just as in a water lily pond or a white lotus pond or a red lotus pond some water lilies or white lotuses or red lotuses are born under the water grow under the water do not stand up out of the water flourish immersed under the water and cool water drenches deep fills and extends throughout them to their tips and to their roots and there's nothing of the whole of those water lilies or lotuses to which the cool water does not extend so too person makes pleasure contentment sorry divested of happiness drenched deep fill and extend throughout the body there's nothing of the whole body to which contentment divested of happiness does not extend. So the um, simile is a lotus or a water lily. Maybe in this country water lilies would be more apt because we don't grow lotuses here. We do grow water lilies. And it just grows under the water. It doesn't come out of the water. It flourishes immersed under the water. Some of them do. And so the cool water is throughout the uh, tips and the roots and everything of the water lily. So this contentment is drenching and steep, is the, the body is steeped with it, filled and extend, extends throughout oneself. This word, the body, is used by the Buddha here because is, this is a sutta on the mindfulness of the body. 
who is using the body. Uh, but we, in the jhana, although one is completely immersed in the, in the whole thing, and one knows that the body is there, immersed in it, it doesn't have the body feeling that we have otherwise. Not that the body feeling that we have right now. It isn't as solid, nor as heavy, nor as circumscribed by its boundaries. And yet we know that we have it, that we have this um, feeling all through us, which is more um, more what is this, this descriptive of what happens. We have this feeling all through us. But because this is mindfulness of the body, the Buddha uses body and says that too, in this each, the paragraph that always is repeated, that too teaches us mindfulness of the body. Because at this time the mind is single-minded, it is um, completely uh, one-pointed, and because the mind is settled, quietened, single and concentrated, we are able to be mindful, mindful of that what is happening. Now comes the fourth challenge. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, and enters upon a bite in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. Also, usually explained like this, but this purity of mindfulness due to equanimity is only in this sutta. Pure mindfulness can only arise when there is complete even-mindedness. But what the fourth jhana actually uh, describes is that there is, at that time, neither the joyfulness nor is there any painful feeling in the body. There is um, no feeling, no, no sensation, no emotion. The, uh, the peacefulness which has started in the third jhana is deepened. Now this is the extent of the fourth jhana. What the, and the stillness which is experienced has only a very minute observer because it's so still that the observer becomes very minute. And that is the purity of mindfulness due to that complete stillness. The uh, absolute mindfulness is when the observer and the observed become one. And when the observer and the observed become one, we have a past moment. So the purity of mindfulness becomes almost complete in this uh, fourth one because we have hardly an observer. We do have an observer, but hardly. Because the mind is so, at, so calm and so still that there's nobody that is really observing that. But it is still not the past moment which has, which doesn't have an observer and therefore cannot be explained because there's nobody there that was observing it. This one can still be explained. One can still say that there's absolute stillness, absolute, yes, stillness is the best word for that. 
So there are, neither, there are no emotions and there are no sensations and there is a minute observer. And it's a deepening of the peacefulness which has started already in the third one. Now again he gives a simile. person sits with pure bright mind. He's a pure and bright. And brightness does not mean a light at that time. It just means that the mind is completely clear. And this is why the fourth jhana is so important. It finally takes a lot of the muddledness out of the mind and makes it bright because there's no motion in it. You see, the first, second, and third all have emotions in them. And emotions make the mind uh, muddled and foggy. But when, the, uh, when there's no, when we practice, the fourth jhana repeatedly over and over again we are without emotions at that time you can't have it either have it or haven't got have it, either have emotions or have the fourth jhana and because of that the mind becomes really bright it's clear the clarity of mind sits with pure bright mind extending over this body and there's nothing of this whole body to which the pure bright mind does not enter uh, sorry, it does not extend. Just as though a person <coughs> were sitting clothed, clothed sorry, from head to foot in white cloth, and there were nothing of this whole body to which the white cloth did not extend, so too person sits with a pure bright mind extending over the whole body. There's nothing of his whole body to which the poor bri- pure bright mind does not extend. So the, um, the simile given is as if one is covered in a white cloth. And this peacefulness, this uh, stillness, uh, and uh, which here is, um, he calls the equanimity, the purity of mindfulness, but uh, this stillness is, one is, is pure and it's uh, bright, very clear, and completely covers one from head to toe. There's no, nothing other that can enter. And this purity and brightness does not have anything else in it, doesn't have any other components. Whereas the other jhanas had components. First one had initial and sustained application and the PT, the delightful sensation. The second one no, it doesn't have the first two anymore, but it has the delightful, uh, in the background, the delightful sensation, the joy, which is a component of it, and the third one uh, has the, um, the contentment <coughs> and uh, <coughs> pleasurable contentment, one could say, and peacefulness, but this one has only purity and brightness, clarity. The word bright is also often misunderstood. People have, um, it's difficult to, uh, first of all, to understand what one hasn't done, that's of course obvious, but even um, one has so many ideas about words that the uh, uh, exactness is often lost. So the, the brightness does not mean the light, it means clarity. And again, it develops mindfulness of the body. It is the 
the way to have a um, such a singleness of mind that mindfulness cannot possibly um, get lost in the fourth one but because one has been practicing this over and over again there is an ease in mindfulness in daily life it eases the mindfulness in daily life because you can't um, not pay attention when you do the jhanas and not pay attention you're not doing the jhanas it's not you, you cannot do jhanas without paying attention it's not possible because then you have no idea what's being what's happening so this paying attention then becomes a factor of the mind and this factor of the mind is then very uh, easily re-aroused in daily life so mindfulness of the body becomes easier it doesn't mean that it becomes perfect perfect mindfulness is only uh, for the arahant some people have an easier time of mindfulness than others but um, the jhanas are a great assistance when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body he has included whatever profitable dhammas there are that partake of true knowledge so if we develop and repeatedly practice mindfulness of the body we are including profitable mental steps why is that? because mindfulness is a profitable mental state and mindfulness as a profitable mental state partakes of true knowledge because mindfulness brings insight it can't help but true mindfulness has to bring insight true knowledge is just another translation for the word insight insight or wisdom it's usually either one or the other it's panya or vipassana but true knowledge is the same thing and um, I think this particular translator Nyala Molly uh, didn't like the word inside I don't think I ever saw it and every country that has their own likes and dislikes as usual <laughs> so one has to know uh, and having re- read it repeatedly and developed and repeatedly read it and practiced one finally knows what they're translating so the profitable dhammas are the profitable mental state of mindfulness and that brings insight it can't help but the first step into insight is the knowing that mind and body are two and one can't help but realize that the mind does one thing and the body does another even though they're interdependent and interconnected they still do their own thing and that's the first step into insight the body for instance is breathing and the mind is watching not the mind breathing and the body watching it's not possible so they have their own uh, functions although being interdependent interconnected they're still two and that's the first step so they partake of true knowledge just as anyone who extends his mind over the great ocean has included whatever streams there are that flow into the ocean so too when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body he has included 
whatever profitable dhammas there are that partake of true knowledge. The simile is that if you, um, if you were to extend your mind over the great ocean, you would also have included the streams that run into the ocean. The, um, the profitable dhammas are two things. The profitable dhammas are the profitable mental states. But they also mean, profitable dhammas also means the investigation into anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, dukkha, and non-substantiality or corelessness. So the profitable dhammas that partake of true knowledge are always those three. And if one is mindful, one can't help but pay attention to the fact that each body action and each body movement is impermanent. If it weren't, we could never have any movement, we could never have any action. Nothing would happen to be um, a pillar of salt and uh, we couldn't do a thing. So it has to be impermanent. And this impermanence will probably give rise to an understanding, not, not definitely, but hopefully, rise to an understanding uh, that there is nothing solid to be found anywhere in the whole of the universe including ourselves so if we are really mindful of the body action we can see this impermanence and not only can not yeah we can even see it with our physical eye and eventually it will have to make an impact i mean people are all moving and acting and all of it is impermanent and nobody pays any attention and nobody pays any attention any attention is due to the fact that nobody is mindful nobody is bare attention mindfulness just doesn't exist people just live their lives three quarter or more asleep from morning to night not from night to morning they're supposed to be asleep then but from morning to night people just fully asleep and have no, haven't got a clue what's going on. Otherwise, everybody would finally realize that this body that is breathing, which is also an action of the body, is dependent for its life on an impermanent air movement that is dependent on anything it does, on something that has to be impermanent like eating food and digesting and excreting. Well, if that wasn't impermanent, we'd be so sick we'd have to go to hospital. And nobody pays attention. Everybody thinks about the possible pleasure they could get out of their senses. So the thinking process that we uh, employ is not with mindfulness, but with desire. And when we employ a thinking process which is based on desire, we are constantly disappointed. Constantly. There's just no let up of this disappointment. Nobody complies with our desires. Nobody cares one tiny bit what we desire. We can't even gratify our own desires to any extent because having gratified them, they arise again. So with this also we can see this complete um, 
impermanence of everything that is connected with ourselves, which is the true knowledge of profitable Dhamma. Now, Dhamma in this your Dhamma in, in English, this is the, the second base of the second factor of the seven factors of enlightenment which we have already talked about, the investigation into the phenomena, into dhammas. The word dhammas means phenomena and it also means the, 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 the mental states, but it also means the profitable dhammas. It also means, it has so many uh, meanings in Pali, it means this understanding of those three factors, the impermanence, which necessarily brings with it unsatisfactoriness. Nothing that's impermanent can be permanently satisfactory. There's no way that, that the impermanent can bring permanent satisfaction. And because it can't do that, we will also eventually see that there's no substance in it. It's all very logical and nice, isn't it? But one's got to see it oneself with inner vision. And for that, one's got to work. One's got to work on one's own desires. And may they be ever so justified, and may they be ever so minute, and may they be ever so socially acceptable, which probably all our desires are socially acceptable. I mean, we don't wish to kill anybody. That's not socially acceptable. And uh, we, we don't uh, wish to, to rob a bank. That's also not socially acceptable. But all the other desires that we probably have are all socially acceptable. It mean, doesn't mean a thing. It means nothing. It's a desire. And all this, this thinking with desire makes it impossible for us to have the mindfulness to see what is really happening. So this work that we have to do in order to see reality is done by everyone, by themselves, all the time morning tonight when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him well I'm sure you remember Mara I told you about Mara he was also a member of the last sutta I think we discussed Mara <laughs> And um, he's an inhabitant of everybody's heart who is not fully enlightened. So um, actually he's... um, We often, most of the time, we are not aware of the fact that Mara is an enemy. Mara is just a fancy word for temptation. So um, uh, we are, we are very uh, unaware that he's an enemy. The um, the lack of mindfulness again, because Mara tempts us into desire. And uh, so, if we're not uh, developing or repeatedly practicing mindfulness of body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in that person. Obviously, if we're not mindful, we will support the uh, the desire. And um, so the temptation is uh, has an opportunity at any moment to enter. Now, if people have different kinds of desires, and all of them, of course, are 
being considered to be justified some people have a desire um, for, other, for another person other people have a desire to be loved other people have a desire to be supported other people have a desire to be led they don't want to be responsible they want others to take responsibility and these are all justifiable desires one thinks socially acceptable at least I mean one isn't doing anything for which one would go to prison but um, it makes life usually unbearable every single one of these desires as um, innocuous they may seem makes life unbearable because they are not being gratified it just doesn't happen that way we can't make it happen that way because we are putting our um, happiness in the hands of outside situations now if one could just I, I think one must realize how foolish that is and why put one's own happiness into the hands of other people or other situations or experiences that happen from outside why can't one put one's uh, trust in happiness into oneself that's the only place it can come from there is no other place one's got it right in here and yet one puts one's uh, uh, whole uh, sometimes a whole basket of eggs into the hands of somebody else it's a, the foolishness of it is uh, un- indescribable and yet the whole world does it it's got to be the, it has to be the, the husband or the wife or the, the children or the parents or the, 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 the lover or the who knows what or the, the boss or the, the, uh, the partners or the uh, nothing for oneself always some or the teacher God forbid (laughs) 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 so this this this, this, that um, development development and the practice of mindfulness one has a chance without that one doesn't have a chance one thinks the world around one has to do it somebody's got to do it Somebody has to comply with one's um, request, whatever they may be, and uh, it just won't happen that way. Now, I'm going to give another simile here. Suppose a man uh, were, were to throw a heavy stone ball at a heap of wet clay. What do you think? Would that heavy stone ball find an entry into that heap of wet clay yes venerable sir so too this is the Buddha asking the monks and then the Buddha say the monks say yes so too when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him like a heavy stone ball thrown at wet clay without mindfulness of the body were like wet clay soft and penetrable and um, um, being molded by what happens around us like a stone ball being thrown at wet clay suppose there were 
a dry, sapless piece of wood, and a person came with an upper fire stick, thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think? Would that person light a fire and produce heat by rubbing the dry, sapless piece of wood with an upper fire stick? Yes, Venerable Sir. Um, it's uh, interesting how one used to make fire two sticks and uh, I mean anybody can do it but we are so out of practice I've tried it that it's so difficult I, I couldn't get it together and yet I mean it's quite possible to do it but we just don't have the practice to do this and in the those days everybody did it so too when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. So if one hasn't practiced and repeatedly developed this mindfulness, it's like when he has a fire stick and one has a sapless piece of wood, rubs them together, you get a fire, so Mara comes in and lights a fire in the heart. Exactly what happened. So now you can see how important the Buddha thinks this is otherwise he wouldn't keep on on this and give so many similes he thinks it's of the utmost importance now again there's another one suppose there were a hollow empty water pot standing on a stand and a man came with a load of water what do you think? would he be able to pour water into it? yes venerable sir so too when anyone has not developed or repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. So we are like a hollow, empty water pot if we don't practice mindfulness of the body. And Mara can put pour all the temptations into that hollow, empty water pot. And then we are full of the desires that Mara, the temptation, has thrown into this hollow, empty water pot. The desires of wanting this constant wanting I want this thing I want that thing I want this person I want that person I want him to be this way I want her to be another way I want my life to be this way and I want my life to be another way all reasonable and all producing dukkha constantly producing dukkha and if we don't see it if we don't uh, if we can't put our mind really one-pointedly and concentratedly on the body, on the movements, on the actions, on everything we do, we're never going to have that clarity, that brightness of mind, which can cut through all this conglomeration of ideas that everybody carries around in their heads. They're just ideas. They have no basis in fact. The only basis in fact is mindfulness, and the jhanas. The rest is all ideas. Completely and totally ideas. It's all that's left when we come right down to the, to the rest of it. Now the mindfulness of the body, it really needs to be practiced in a retreat such as this, as we do this and that. As we walk, as we eat, as we go to the toilet, as we take a shower, as we wake up. We had this here in this uh, sutta the waking up, the falling asleep, the getting dressed, and all the rest of it. The more we do it, obviously nobody's going to be perfect in it. It's quite all right. 
but not to try that's objectionable not to be perfect in it's quite okay there's nothing wrong with that but not to even try not to even think about it that is non-practice and you see how important the Buddha thinks there's more keeps going on like this suppose a man were to throw a light ball of string at a door panel all made of hardwood what do you think people would that light ball of string find an entry into that door panel all made of hardwood hardwood is the, the inner core of the wood no venerable sir so too when anyone has developed and repeatedly practiced mindfulness of the body Mara finds no opportunity or support in him so a light ball of string obviously is not going to um, find any kind of entry into some hard wood it's hard wood it's called hot wood but it's hard wood <laughs> the Buddha, in, this, in the Buddhist uh, discourse it's always the hot wood that inner core so it's a hard wood so the, um, uh, then the temptation cannot get in. Now how does the temptation not get in? Not only because, well there's two things to remember. One I've already said. One is that if our mind is directed towards paying attention to what we're doing, <coughs> we can't pay attention to anything else. So if we pay attention to what we're doing, we're not going to be tempted. The temptation arises in the mind when the mind is not suitably <coughs> occupied. Most of the time in our lives, without having practiced, our mind is unsuitably occupied. So when our mind is suitably occupied, no temptation enters. And the other thing is that the mindfulness itself, the continuation of it, purifies the mind just as the jhanas do and with the purification of mind from the jhanas and from the mindfulness we have far less temptation less and less so the the mindfulness has both aspects it has the purification aspect and it has the aspect that the mind is suitably occupied it inclines towards mindfulness it tends and inclines Whereas if we let go, it tends and inclines towards desires. This is a natural human uh, absurdity. It always has a desire. And the desires seem to promise some gratification. But in reality, we are creating constant dukkha for ourselves with these desires. Now that needs to be what uh, experienced for oneself. The first and second noble truth is the easiest thing to experience. But people don't pay attention that there's dukkha and it arouses, arises out of desire. The thing to do is, if we have any kind of desire, like this should be this way or not that way and it should be another way and I should like to have this or get this or be this or become this or whatever it is, and recognize that that one has that kind of wish. Drop the wish. 
for one second only and become aware of the utter and total relief. But do it. Don't just hear it. Do it. Drop it for one second. And then you'll know what practicing means. Practicing means dropping again and again and again. It means letting go again and again. And in the end there's nothing left to let go of. That's Arahant, fully enlightened, but I mean, you know, in the meantime, there's a few things to let go of. Mm. Hmm. Well, there's more to this for tomorrow. If you have any questions now, you can ask them. Okay. Yes. Substitution, the four supreme efforts as far as the mental states are concerned and the four uh, emotional states which are the Brahma Viharas always substituting for any other emotions. These are our purification methods. And of course, without mindfulness, it can't be done. Because if we didn't have mindfulness, we wouldn't know what our mental states are, and we wouldn't know what our emotional states are. So first we have to have the mindfulness to know those states, and then we also have the opportunity to substitute. But mindfulness as such, even without seeing those states, mindfulness as such of the body is already a purification system, because the emotional states just can't arise then. And the jhanas themselves, of course, are too. So we've got plenty of opportunity to, to purify if we take the opportunity. So what else? It doesn't look very promising, does it? Anything else? So the only thing that might um, might be worth repeating at this point is the fact that mindfulness of the body is something that needs to be practiced in daily life under every circumstance and particularly here we have a specially good opportunity to do that step by step watching ourselves and as we do that the desires can't arise and every time the desire, desire does arise and makes the mind um, unruly or anxious uh, back to the mindfulness of the body. And there's always something happening with the body. Body, Even if one is sitting quietly and it's something is happening, one can feel the temperature of it, one can feel the solidity of it, one can feel any kind of unpleasant sensation, one can hear the gurgling of it or whatever else is happening. There's always something happening with the body.
So if one practices that, one has a good chance. One has a good chance to have a mind which becomes pure and bright. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Put your attention on the feelings in your heart. And find out what they're like. Are there any that create unhappiness? Let them float away like clouds in the sky. Are there any that create anxiety? Memory or plans? Let them float away. Is there any worries, any fears, any hopes that would float away like clouds in the sky? Come back to this moment this moment only how do you feel let the heart speak of love and compassion and nothing else directed towards yourself. Be filled with it. 
drenched with these two emotions, immersed in them, coming out of your own heart. creating the kind of environment for yourself where happiness abounds of that lovely environment of love and compassion that you have created in your own heart. Spread it to the people around you so that they too can be drenched and filled and immersed those feelings. Spread it further. as the power of your feelings will reach let the heart extend and grow and encompass as many beings as possible, creating the environment of love and compassion. Let as many beings be filled and immersed in those feelings which come from your heart.
let the heart extend its faculty and quality of love and compassion far and wide as large as the universe Think of any particular person whom you would like to give the gift of love and compassion. Let those feelings reach out to that person so that he or she can be filled and immersed in them. Think of anyone who you think might need it especially. Give the gift of love and compassion to that person. Think of anyone whom you might find difficult, difficult to love. Let the beauty of your heart faculty not be impaired and extend it love and compassion to that person also letting him or her be drenched and immersed in those feelings coming from your heart
and think of those people who you care about. Let them take part in your inner purity and beauty. Take them fully into your heart without expecting anything in return. Now put your attention back on yourself. Resolve to keep out <coughs> those feelings which create worry and fear, desire, unhappiness. Resolve. the heart filled only with love and compassion. Anchor them in your heart. So that they become one with it. the happiness which arises out of those feelings of love and compassion. Keep them within you. Let your inner being be filled with them. So that they become so strong that outside influences can no longer attack them. May there be love and compassion in all beings' hearts. 